welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Mohan Gundetti from the University of Chicago talking about robotic-assisted laparoscopic surgery in pediatric urology. Hi guys, I'm Brittany. I'm one of the residents at the University of Chicago, and it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Mohan Gandetti, a professor of surgery and chief of pediatric urology here at the University of Chicago. Uh, today we'll be discussing robot-assisted laparoscopic surgery in pediatrics, and Dr. Gandetti is a world-renowned leader in this field. I've had the pleasure of operating with him this year during my pediatric rotation, so I'm very excited, and I'll uh, send it over to you, Dr. Gandetti. Thank you, Brittany, um, and uh, thank you to all the coordinators and organizers uh, for this educational mission. And I want you all to, first of all, thank you for what you are doing uh, in person or remotely for patient care and education amongst this situation of pandemic crisis. So let's, um, take a step back and you know as a surgeon while we're taking care of the patients our main aim has been to reduce the morbidity of the patient while giving the better outcomes and of course every time you do the surgery the patient is exposed to the brutality and the risk of the surgical intervention and it's no different you know as a pediatric surgeon or an adult surgeon we have a compassion to treat our patients with to give the better outcomes and reduce morbidity and as much as possible minimal invasive approach. So, you know, traditionally laparoscopic surgery has been around for more than four decades. And in fact, the first laparoscopic surgery was performed on an infant in California back in 1969 on a one month baby infant for diagnostic laparoscopy. And it's been terrific, you know, it had all the advantages of minimal invasive surgery in regards to the patient stay, you know, the morbidity and the outcomes. But the issue came in when you were doing the complex reconstruction, which involved intricate steps of surgery. And this graph depicts that what has been happening in regards to just a sample of pediatric intervention in the United States. If you look at this graph, you know, the laparoscopy has been around for treatment of the pyloplasty for pediatric patients since early 90s. But if you look at the curve, it's very flat and it indicates that the take of laparoscopic approach for pyloplasty has been very minimal until late 2006-2007 when the robotic surgery came in, you can see suddenly the graph is going up while the open surgery is going down, indicating that the laparoscopy was a trouble for reconstructive surgery. Now, apart from the restriction, what are the occupational hazards to the surgeon? As a surgeon, we always at the giving end, you know, to do the best for the patient, but often we forget ourselves that what are the risks involved to us? And this is the survey which denotes that when it is compared to the endurologist, to a medical practitioner, 
we are at a risk of increased risk of occupational hazard, especially all the arthropedic abnormality, we can get it with a laparoscopic surgery. So why do we need to change? I think, you know, we do need to change, just not because of the time and technology is changing, but also the change will bring into something better for the patient treatment. This is the curve explosion of the technological intervention into the medicine. And we all know we have been a part of this and some have been innovators and some have been at application of this into the pediatric or adult practice. So what happens? I think whenever we're at the stage where you need to change, you need to hit refresh. And this book depicts very well about hit refreshing and how you have to rediscover yourself for the newer approaches and your application for our patients better. And that gave rise to birth of the in introduction of the robotic surgical technology into the whole surgical armamentarium. And Rich Satawa says that the 21st century surgery should be bites and bites, and we should forget about blood and guts of the open surgery. So is it a fascination? As urologists, we are always aware to the newer technologies, newer instrumentation. And is it like, you know, we really like technology as a science fiction, as a fascination, or we will be working for a future platform of digital surgery, and this will act as a base for this digital surgery. So let's look at some of the work which has been involved in regards to the application of robotic surgery and what does it does to the surgical skills. If you look at this graph here, that you know, when we were learning with the laparoscopy, we took a long time, but also if we didn't do something for a while, we were, when we come back, it was very difficult for us to get back to the, you know, the laparoscopic skills. But if you look at the robotic surgical skills, even if you haven't done it for a while, I think, you know, you retain it for a while uh, without the difficulty. It indicates that the retention is much better. What happens with the stress? You know, there is a, some factor which is not under your control and you try to control the stress during surgery, during intricate steps, but you know, everybody has different cope-up level. And it shows that the performance under stress is much better with in inception of the robotic technology compared to the laparoscopic surgery. And it shows that, you know, along with adult urology, the pediatric urologists were also at the forefront and last 10 years, you can see the number of publications coming in urology, though initial surgery was the pediatric general surgery, later on it was taken up by the pediatric urologist. In regards to the procedure and little bit about the history, what happened with the pediatric robotic surgery is in the United States, first pediatric robotic pyroplasty was performed in 2002 at Boston Children's Hospital. We in Europe, in London started doing in 2005, and the number of procedures have been evolving, just not the pyeloplasty, but reimplantation, augmentation, bladder neck reconstruction, and you continue to name all intra-abdominal reconstructions are performed by one or other author at various institutions, and mainly North America being at the forefront, followed by Europe and then rest of the world. Now, what, have, what has been applied and done in last more than a decade, as I mentioned since 2005, in last 15 years, 
It's just not the procedural application, but it was looked at very carefully that what are the early outcomes, how we can train our residents, our fellows, and our surgeons around the world, and what are the safety issues, because pediatric patients pose a different challenge compared to the adult population, not just because of the physiology, but also the inherent, the small anatomical and intricate anatomy, which is a very difficult issue. So let's uh, see what's happening about the application. As we talked about, is the pyloplasty is a very common procedure performed and is one of the commonest anomaly we deal with. And 50% of current pyloplasty are in the United States are performed by robotic laparoscopic approach. And if you look at the rest 50% of the robotic procedures, I think 25% come to the electric reimplantation and then the rest 25% is a mixture of continent catheterizable channels, augmentation, and the pelvic procedures. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to share with some of the technical steps and some of the video clips of some intra-abdominal surgeries uh, we have been performing here. So let's talk about the simple first thing is the pyloplasty. And in pyloplasty, as we talked about, it's one of the commonest procedure performed. And we need to work around a little bit for patient positioning and the port placement because these pediatric patients pose a big challenge for the basically the port placement. So the patient is positioned very well in a just like adult pyloplasty, but we take care of all the pressure points well. The ports are placed as shown here, and this port placement will work very well for all pediatric procedures. The camera port is at umbilicus, and then there are two working ports, one very close to the GP sternum, other one equidistance between umbilicus and anterior superior leg spine. And we do tend to use a five millimeter assistant port as a laparoscopic port for bedside assistant, which can be in a suprapubic area. But in infants, as the space is very small, uh, that means to say, you know, children under one year of age, we put all the ports in midline so that the space is a not a limitation and the collision externally is much less. And the five millimeter assistant port moves to the opposite midclavicular line uh, just above the ASIS. This is a simple picture showing you how the room orientation is for the pyloplasty and uh, that's operating table we try to be on one side so that we all can communicate very well and the robot is docking behind the patient with the xi you could dock it from the foot end as well but i think you know depending on what you have you can change accordingly so surgical steps you know is very similar to the open or laparoscopic you once you get in you know you put a heat suture you try to transect the pelvis and then spatulate the ureter at six o'clock and then do the post-reval anastomosis. You put the stent either internal or a cutaneous external stent and then you can complete the anastomosis uh, and that's how it looks like. Lecture. So how does this um, pyloplasty look like intracorporally? So once we put it's not working in here. Hello. Hello. 
can we mute the camera if you are not speaking please so once we get the ports and um, you know we put the heat suture then we uh, transject the pelvis and then do the anastomosis now what i want to show you here is that's the liver that's head end of the patient foot end of the patient here and uh, the tissue handling is very precise and delicate uh, we are using here 6OPDS suture. We perform the posterior wall anastomosis. The liver is actually very low, but because the UPJ was low, uh, we didn't put uh, liver, the liver retraction here, but that is preferable. You can see the heat suture uh, to raise the pelvis. And once you do the posterior wall anastomosis, you're going to put um, cutaneous piloureteral stent. And what this, this stent do is the part of the stent is in the upper ureter, the coil is in the pelvis, and then rest of the stent comes out through the pelvis externally outside to the skin, and that drains into diaper and then is clamped off after a day. And then you remove after about a week or so in outpatient clinic. And this avoids the second surgery for patient and the visit to the operating room. So that's how this helps. It's called as a cutaneous piloureteral stent. Uh, some surgeons may bring this through the renal uh, cortex which we have done in the open surgery but it does cause some bleeding so that i modified this to bring it through the pelvis once you do the posterior wall anastomosis then you can do the anterior wall anastomosis in a similar fashion one of the things i want to mention here is uh, these needle drivers are called as a diamond black diamond or fine needle holders uh, they are very well versatile for 6.0 and 7.0 TDS. And actually, I got this um, information from our cardiac surgeons who operate next door. And when they were doing the open cardiac bypass surgery, I looked at these instruments and how useful they are. The only downside is it doesn't hold the tissues very well. So you need to be very careful. And the second downside is you can easily break the suture because they are so sharp. So you just need to get used to, but it deals with the suture and needle so well, uh, it's very useful for such an intricate surgery. Uh, this patient was, a, I think, a six or eight weeks baby uh, who had a right hydronephrosis obstruction uh, with a low renal function. That's why we have to do it in earlier life. And that's how the anastomosis uh, looks like once you have done. So this is the picture of that piloureteral stent. So the part of the stent is in the upper ureter, the coil is in the pelvis, and then rest of the stent comes out through the skin where you have attached to the skin so that it doesn't come out. Uh, we had some extrusions in the initial period. So we have now started attaching the stent uh, with a small suture to the pelvis so it doesn't extrude out easily. Let's move to the duplex kidneys. I don't want to talk much about the, you know, the variables and different op uh, options available for duplex kidney. But if you have a non-functioning kidney, you either can do a ureteroiretrostomy or a heminephrectomy. And my uh, usually preference is to remove the disease portion of kidney, that's heminephrectomy along with the ureter. And you may say, why do you need the robotic laparoscopic surgical approach for this? You could do laparoscopically. Uh, of course, it is possible. I have done myself in the past, but we have seen that the traction on the blood vessel was too much and we lost about 5% of the patient, the remaining moiety. 
And that allowed me to think about to use the robotic laparoscopic approach. So another short video clip of two minutes just to show you uh, how this can be dealt with. Again, this is a similar another infant with obstructed kidney, recurrent urinary tract infection. We placed you know, the patient just like a renal position I've shown you and the upper moiety is dilated. The upper moiety ureter is usually distended and the space was a problem, so just incised. And before we proceed further, it's very important that you identify the normal ureter of the lower moiety. Uh, some surgeons tend to put a stent in that ureter so you can easily identify it. And that's a very safe approach. Uh, in the beginning, you should do it. But once you get comfortable, you don't have to really think about putting a stent in the lower ureter. So that's upper moiety dilated ureter. We are transecting it after confirmation that the lower moiety ureter has been identified. And that upper moiety ureter is slowly transformed above behind the renal hilum, taking precautions that you don't put much traction on the renal hilum. And then the upper moiety vessels are now being transjected with the bipolar forceps. You can use the stainless steel clip applicator or a wet clips, but the space is so small and the vessels are so small, uh, it is very preferable just to do a bipolar wide dissection. And after that, you use a harmonic scalpel and then remove the upper moiety non-functioning element. Then you slowly go down and transect the ureter as low as possible. And again, you need to be very careful as you go below the common sheet, uh, you need to carefully identify the lower ureter and preserve any damage or injury. Now, what about some of the pelvic procedures? Pelvic procedures like electric reimplantation, containment catheterizable channels, or augmentation cystoplasty. So first of all, let's look at the port placement and positioning. The patient is placed in a very low lithotomy position. It's not really high lithotomy. You need to take care of all the pressure points again very well. You take care of the chest and the face. Uh, these are very important points. And then once you do that, you put a usually a camera port at umbilicus, uh, two working ports on either line at the midclavicular line, and a five millimeter assistant port uh, between the umbilicus and the eight millimeter working port. Remember, there are some children who may have a kyphoscoliosis, and that's why their pubo umbilical distance may be small, or young children whose distance is less than 10 centimeter or 12 centimeter, you need to move the camera port above the umbilicus so that you can work in the pelvis without difficulty. And that's very important. And I learned after you know, some of my initial difficulties experienced with initial cases. So with that note, we will look at the video clip of a robotic electric reimplantation. So this uh, young patient who had a recurrent urinary tract infection, uh, he had a grade four, grade five ascycloretral reflux. He, is, uh, he had some renal scarring and uh, after failed conservative measurement and the toilet training, we made a dis discussion about various options available, you know, open surgical versus the minimal invasive reimplantation. I use the endoscopic injection for mainly lower grades. So here, this is a robotic ureter implantation. We dissected the ureter 
and we putting a heat suture on the bladder so that the bladder can be retracted anteriorly. And then we do the diffuser tunnel as this is an extravasical approach. Try to get about four centimeter and do a wide dissection to preserve the iliotrovascular junction and the neurovascular bundle, which is dorsomedial. And then the last thing is to prevent any heat damage to the ureter, which is very crucial at ureterocycle junction. The bladder is filled with about 60 ml saline so that you have some distension of the bladder. After that, you do diprozerography. And the first stitch is like a U-stitch, which actually advances the ureter into the diffuser tunnel. And then you continuously do the diffuserography in an extravasical fashion, starting at ureterovocycle junction and then march toward the apex of the diffuser tunnel. The suture material used is a 4OPDS and the length is about 15 centimeters. I tend to use the umbilical tape for retraction so that the ureter is not handled directly. And then the last suture is at the apex um, of the diffuser tunnel to the ureter of the adventitia called as apical alignment suture. And my belief is it will keep the ureter in the diffuser tunnel and prevent any slippage off. And this is how it looks like after completion of the reimplantation. What about the continent catheterizable channels? It is feasible and it is possible to do these procedures. Either it could be just isolated appendicovocycostomy or you can do an appendicovocycostomy and uh, ACE channel if it is required uh, with a long appendix or sometime if the appendix is short, you can make a sickle flap and uh, that will give the sickle flap ACE channel for those children who need both bladder and bowel management. I give a lot of references underneath the videos and you know, these are very short video clips, but uh, if somebody is interested, uh, all these videos are available in the publication. So let's look at the isolated appendicovocycostomy for those children who are unable to do CIC through urethra and their bladder emptying is a problem. Now in those isolated cases, you can implant the appendix on the anterior wall because they don't need augmentation, but if they need augmentation, then we have to do the reimplantation on posterior wall. Here we are just looking at the appendix length and we are preserving all the mesentery to the appendix very well. And we take a part of the cecum so that when you bring the appendix to the skin level, the cecal flap is much broader, is much healthier and prevent the stenosis. So after that appendix isolation, you fill the bladder again, similarly about 60 to 100 ml so that you can do the diffuser tunnel very well. Very similar to the, what we have done for reimplantation, but this is on anterior wall. Uh, spatulate the appendix, handle the appendix stick very well. Don't you know, really put a lot of pressure because you, know, you are looking for crushing the tissues. You put the apex suture to the apex of diffuser tunnel and then the spatulated crouch to the mucosa where you have made a small opening in the bladder mucosa. Following that, you do a posterior wall anastomosis of the bladder mucosa to the appendix full thickness. This is a suture showing you that the feeding to place across is secured to prevent any dislodgement. And then you put the 
remaining wall anastomosis of the bladder mucosa to the full thickness of the appendix. Suture material you can use here is a 5 PDS or 4 white tool. And then you close the diffusor muscle over the appendix, and that creates the continence mechanism to prevent the stomal incontinence. And again, suggestion is about three to four centimeters at least. Make sure that as you come to the apex, don't make it too tight. Let's look at the small video clip of a sickle flap. Uh, in this patient, you know, probably the appendix was very short and we use just the appendix for whole appendix of a psychostomy while um, the sickle flap is for the bowel management and it's about four centimeter in length three centimeter in width you take a whole sickle flap on anterior wall and then you tubularize that so almost you are creating like a small conduit out of that bowel You may have noticed that you know there are some pieces or something seen here. Uh, we don't tend to do the bowel preparation, and uh, we haven't seen any difference in the outcomes. Uh, if uh, all the children come home on the day of surgery, they don't take; they just continue their oral anti-medication or the bowel management medication, but no special bowel preparation required. And that's how the sickle flap looks. Uh, the whole tube is created. Uh, just buttressing at the lower end and then use that suture to retract rather than the sickle flap so that you don't tear the new tube which has been formed and you match it to the skin. The complex procedure uh, in pediatric urology which involves multiple steps is augmentation cystoplasty, appendix over psychostomy with or without bladder neck reconstruction and this can also be accomplished uh, with this approach. This was our initial report, but subsequently uh, we have evolved in regards to the steps and refined the multiple steps. And Brittany has been very kind enough to work on this project. In this video, we provide step-by-step -step instructions to perform a robotic-assisted laparoscopic augmentation ileocystoplasty in the Trophanov appendicovesicostomy, utilizing the University of Chicago technique to optimize surgical time. A 12-millimeter camera cord is placed in a super umbilical position. 8-millimeter robotic working arm ports are placed laterally at the level of the umbilicus in the mid-clavicular line. A 5-millimeter assistant port is placed in the left upper quadrant. A fourth arm robotic port can be placed at the site of stoma creation in the right iliac fossa in patients who are 11 years or older. We begin by identifying the appendix, ensuring adequate length and vascularity to allow for successful appendicovesicostomy. In this patient, he was noted to have a three centimeter appendix. Therefore, the appendix was excised with a flap of cecum to compensate for the length and avoid stomal stenosis. For the cystoplasty patch, we identified 20 centimeters of ileum, approximately 20 centimeters from the ileocecal junction. Percutaneous stay sutures can be placed with keep needles and are utilized to provide traction to the bowel and allow for easy isolation and anastomosis. A pre-measured tape is used to ensure accurate measurement of the bowel segments. The ileal loop is transected. The mesentery can be taken down with our harmonic scalpel to reduce bleeding.
bowel continuity is reestablished by a hand-sewn single-layer serumuscular anastomosis using 5-OPDS in children and 4-OPDS in the adult. As the appendix was only three centimeters in length, the decision was made to perform an oblique extravescal appendicovesicostomy. Otherwise, we suggest the intravescal approach to reduce operative time. The detrusorotomy is made with monopolar scissors. The stay suture at the tip of the appendix allows for easy manipulation while minimizing direct handling of the appendix. The appendix is spatulated in anastomose to the bladder mucosa with interrupted 5-0 PDS sutures. Previously isolated ileal segment is now detubularized on the anti-mesenteric border with harmonic scalpel. We do not utilize a bottle prep. The bladder is distended with normal saline and a cystotomy is performed along the coronal plane. A thick wall bladder is encountered here and we find the harmonic scalpel aids in hemostasis and decreases operative time. Attention is turned to the bladder augmentation with ileal patch. The detubularized bowel is sutured to the apices of the cystotomy. Utilization of the fourth arm can aid in retraction and exposure. We suggest the use of a barbed quill suture to perform the posterior bilateral anastomosis in a continuous fashion. We place two superpubic tubes percutaneously for maximum drainage. The anterior bladder bowel anastomosis is performed working from the apices toward the midline. The bowel segment is longer than the the augmented bladder is filled with saline to identify leakage. In this patient, the appendix was brought to the right iliac fossa through the fourth on robotic port. So the bowel segment is much larger than the bladder, so you need to do the quilting so that you can take care of that inequality, and that's how it looks like after completion of the augmentation. Thank you, Brittany. So I want to skip the bladder neck reconstruction uh, because, you know, the, the video has been published for the shortage of the time. Let's move to the little bit of aspect of, you know, why we're doing it and can we prove or disprove and how can we proceed with this robotic surgical application. As we all know that the ideal recommendation in regards to surgical innovation follows the stepwise approach. And, you know, the innovation will lead to development and then dispersion and the assessment and long-term monitoring. And I think we are probably at the verge of assessment and long-term monitoring for the pediatric applications. It's very difficult, as we all know, being a surgeon and practitioners, that surgeon is one aspect, but we are a team. You know, we are assisted by our nursing team. 
you know, we are assisted by the, our operating room scrub talk, you know, the anesthesia team, then the patient factor itself. But in spite of all these confounding factors, we still need to form some base or some platform to evaluate ourselves and to do the assessment. So for that reason, I put these four blocks that can we look at the morbidity? What are the patient outcomes? What is the financial cost and parental gains with these procedures? So let's look at, you know, first of all, the outcomes of pyeloplasty. And it's been around, as I mentioned, almost more than 50 years. And if you look at the success rate in regards to need for the redo pyeloplasty, the, with one approach, initially it was 86%, and it indicates the learning curve. But as you go through, including our own institutional data, it's almost like a 95% success rate. And I think that is reasonable. And as you continue on, we don't have updated data. And Dr. Prithvi Murthy, uh, who has worked on this about five years ago, but the updated data is almost close to 98%. So I think that's a very reasonable outcome when you look at the calmness procedure done by this approach. What about the urethral reimplantation? Urethral reimplantation went through a stormy period because of the surgical technique variability, the success was variable and it was ranging from 85 to 95%. But the urinary retention rates at the same time was much lower when you compare with the open surgical approach. So what happened with the electric reimplantation that we accepted the previous open surgical technique and that's what I have been adopting it since 2008. But we realized the success rate was very poor and this technique got evolved since 2010, 2011. And the main emphasis is on the detrusor tunnel, which has to be almost like a four centimeter, but also use stitch to advance it. And then the apical alignment suture so that the ureter doesn't slip off. And we gave acronym like L length, U, U stitch, A apical stitch, and A is the adventitia inclusion in the detrusor raffi. And uh, Anup uh, worked on this a lot along with Dr. Bison and the credit goes to them about you know, this technique evolving. What about the outcomes? As we talked about initial outcome for vasicolateral reflux resolution was very poor. And uh, we about five, six centers in the United States, we came across, uh, come along as a collaborative effect and we looked at our own reflux resolution in a multi-center and initially it was about 87 to 88%. And we, as we continue to evolve, the prospective study, we got to 93% success rate for reflux resolution. So I think as the technique modified, as the learning curve was achieved, uh, the success rate is very reasonable with a complication rate of three to 5%. What about the heminephrectomy? As I mentioned in heminephrectomy, earlier when we used to do with the open or laparoscopic approach, we had about five to 10% of patients losing the remaining moiety, but with the robotic laparoscopic approach that has been not shown. Similar with the continence catheterizable channel, the continent outcome was 90% and the required length of the diffuser tunnel for catheterizable channel is at least about four centimeters. Similar in a multi-institutional study, you can look at the procedures, uh, number of procedures performed were much higher than a single institutional study and the continence outcomes after 
uh, final outcome was 90 to 95%. What about the augmentation cystoplasty? Uh, this took a little toll in regards to the surgical time. You can expect multiple steps, but uh, as Brittany mentioned in a recent video, the surgical times came across and the complications have remained very reasonable when compared with the robotic and open. And again, this work was done by Prithvi uh, while he was with us as a medical student. What about the safety? Uh, everybody heard about, you know, there has been a lot of praise and a lot of claims of, you know, the robotic surgery incidents and the complications. And I think my take is, it's um, operator dependent, you know, it's a tool, a surgical tool. I think we need to learn how to adopt this tool and we need to modify and adapt to it rather than, you know, we just blaming the tool being at the fault. So in that response, we put together a multi-center collaboration of a pediatric uh, robotic surgery performed at eight centers, total about 900 cases. And if you look at the complication rate was about 5%. And these complications were mostly procedural related and related to the tools was much less like conversion to open because of the malfunctioning was only about 1%. But this was about six to seven years ago, things have changed since then. What about the morbidity? We talked about the morbidity in regards to the erectile reimplantation. You know, we know that when we do the open cohensile implantation, the bladder spasms and polycatheterization is much higher compared to the uh, cycle robotic reimplantation. Now this comparison is not apple to apple, it's apple to orange because that's my surgeon practicus is open surgical cohensile implantation while robotic extravasical. But still, if I compare my practice, I think there are some benefits with this approach. This is Christian Kim from Connecticut who looked at the extravasicle open and extravasicle um, robotic and you can see the morbidity is much less. Urinary retention, again, looking at all the data available so far is less than 5%. Why this urinary retention is much less is uh, Pankaj who was with us in the past um, as a resident, he looked at it along with the neurosurgeons and though it is very difficult to locate where the nerve bundles are, I think if we can dissect well away from dorsomedial location, about a centimeter from the ureterovascular junction, and keep the adventitia and vascularity of the ureter very well, I think we can preserve the neurovascular bundle and uh, prevent the urinary retention. What are the unseen benefits? You know, these are all seen benefits. There could be some unseen benefits, which we are not known, like looking at the course in model cystoplastic open versus robotic. The sham, uh, when we looked at it after the surgery, where the course in model was survived for six weeks, the adhesions were much less uh, with the robotic laparoscopic approach. But I think you can extrapolate that, that if we are doing repeated surgeries in spina bifida, I think it will be helpful that you know to have them with a minimal invasive approach so we can prevent the adhesions and the obstruction in the longer run. So how can we be champion? I think you know as we all train through, as we progress through, um, just like any individual or communal sport, I think you know first of all we need to learn ourselves, we have a dedication and then you know we have to take into account the patient factor and lastly the financial aspect. So let's look at the nuances of, first of all, technology. I think the 
close association with the open surgery is a little bit lost. And I think we need to learn about the communication in this big operating area. And that's very crucial, first of all. Second thing is the system is very generic, what we have, and we do need to adapt it to our pediatric application as if it's like a six weeks baby or a 16 year old. And we need to look at how we can put a port placement, how we can handle the tissues, and how we can overcome the tactile sensation when we are handling these delicate tissues. The last important thing is, as we are you know, training next generation surgeons, the case volumes have gone down because along across the world, slowly the birth rates are decreasing, the congenital malformations are also decreasing. And this is a study done in Europe, which shows that you know, hardly you may be doing about 10 pyeloplasties in a year. And if we continue to do the traditional arthroscopic approach, I think the training will be much more prolonged. So I think as training comes into way, and you know, we need to train our next generation surgeon with a less volume of cases, I think it may be helpful uh, with a rapid adoption with this interception. This is our graph showing that you know, at University of Chicago, the number of robotic cases performed. If you compare the total, the green is the adult urology and the red is the pediatric. So the numbers are much, much less and it indicates that the training has to be more enhanced with the less number of cases. And all the fellows, when the survey was done, they said that they want more training in laparoscopic and robotic surgery. Now one note about the instruments available. Currently we have five and eight millimeter instruments available. The five millimeter instruments actually don't help us because the intracarporeal distance required from tip to the joint is almost four centimeter compared to the eight where it is about 2.5 centimeter. So the longer working and the different action, it doesn't help us to really get to the end organ in a small space. But still we continue to do this because survival of fittest as of the Darwin's theory among this situation. So how can we overcome this? First of all, it's very crucial that we get all the dry skills in the laboratory. And we have so many devices currently available. It's very crucial to get all the dry skills so that we well versed with this technology. Simulation, without doubt, has a crucial role, just not practicing, but also before surgery and individually specifically designed to the procedures. There are some inherent downsides often, you know, some may take a long time to train compared to the others, but I think it is still possible to train and learn. And in vivo skills are without doubt more, most crucial before going into the clinical application. And when you go into clinical application, you do the modification of the steps as we talked about, you know, just the port placement and the positioning and have someone with you in the beginning cases, you don't want to go on your own in the beginning. You have to be persistent. You have to continue to have your mentors and your proctors around. And there are some courses available around the country, hands-on, live courses, and you should avail those facilities just like us, we have it here at the University of Chicago. This was just a simple model explaining the number of surgeons coming around the world for availing this training facility. So what is my suggestion of training? Of course, everybody is different and everybody has their own plans, but I think the dry labs, then followed by the wet labs, then courses and like as demonstration, 
spending time in the operating room, observing the cases, working with your team, and then slowly evolving from the bedside to the console, then doing the small portions at a time, getting better at it. And then once you do all procedure under proctor and mentorship, you can start analyzing yourself where you can improve. You progress with the complexity of cases as well, like a pyloplast is an index case for pediatric, then you move on to reimplantation, then you move on to the catheterizable channel and the complex reconstructions in the later time. There's a definitely learning curve. As I mentioned, this is just a simple graph showing you that if you want to take a pyloplasty, this is about 25 to 30 cases when you compare with open for a learning curve, and then you get to master uh, as comparable to the open surgery. Similar again, learning curve. This was uh, put together by Dr. Nimrad Barasi, how you can look at the operating time of infant versus pediatric and the complications and what is the number required to get better. Now, as I mentioned, the safety concerns are mainly technology is neutral, it's all operator dependent. And I think as an operator, as we a surgeon, need to take all the precautions and we need to learn ourselves better to handle this situation. And the most important thing is judgment. I think judgment is you, you can make a judgment Nobody can make a judgment for your own uh, associated with the case volume and then your background of training and proctorship. Little bit about financial aspect for a couple of minutes. I think, you know, it's going to be costly, but I think it's just looking at the one directional costly, but if you look at the whole enterprise of the university or the academic institution, I think there are variable factors involved. And I think there are some gains versus some loss, I think in the end, I think for patient purpose, it really helps. And this huge complicated graph shows you that uh, how that can be covered. Simple example, you know, if you can do a manual labor, you're going to get to just minimal work and it could be less expensive, but when you use automated devices, if you can be better, you can get a bigger work done, I think is eventually going to pay off and that's how human capital gains are. The direct cost comparison is very difficult, but when we looked at it, it was about $500 more. And uh, if you can look at the big picture, the human capital gains and the patient factors, I think uh, it's actually not much. And various literature shows that, you know, if you take a lot of time for laparoscopic, then operating room time is going to be expensive and then robotic will be much less. And if you look at open surgery, if you look at the same timings, then the cost will be similar. When you looked at the reimplantation, we are still very early. And when you compare with the open versus robotic reimplantation, again, it's a little bit expensive just because of the initial learning curve and the surgical times. Now, how do you want to you know, keep up your skills? As we talked about, the volume is less and you may not be doing the same case in a week or two. I think practice is very crucial as always in other profession, how it is done. Now, the as we are in this situation where we are doing a lot of telemedicine, I think telementoring is the best option available if you don't have an immediate proctor or mentor. And I think that needs to be explored much more in the future for use. The future is bright. I think in um, any technology, I think it's a disrupt, it follows the disruptive pathway. And I think, you know, the future of telerobotic surgery 
which is really bright as you may read about it in Canada, the trials are going on. And here in Seattle, Dr. Rich Satawa is actually doing some trans-state telerobotic experimentation, but I think the future will be promising in that aspect. Various uh, countries are investing in the telerobotic surgery and also creation of the new devices. And uh, it is yet the time to wait and see what happens with all these. The current Korean model is in Southeast Asia and it's in practice. The Cambridge robotic from England is in practice, uh, not in practice yet, but uh, there have been clinical models available. And the, you name the new like a Titan, Medtronic, all are going to come in. And the main advantage of this possibly is miniaturization, low cost, and you know, ease availability for everywhere around the world. But one thing is, you know, the robot is robot. I think uh, they're not going to replace us. They will be complementary and they will aid in the further benefit to the humanity and the patient. The fight is not over. Uh, we still continue to have a challenge of miniaturization, you know, dedicated training, and also we need to at the cost in the future, how we can reduce it as much as possible. One last note about, you know, as a surgeon, you know, how we can contribute to the economy of any country is if we can take care of the surgical patients, you know, they can get better and they can be a productive member of the society and uh, it's an agenda for many organizations across the world. And on individual scale, you know, we all do this uh, noble profession and help the deserved people across the world as volunteer mission works. So with that, Nate, I want to say that, you know, if you want to get something done by people, you know, remove the obstacles. I hope, you know, I was able to brainstorm some of the questions during uh, this whole process of last 45 minutes talk. And um, this is the mantra of our uh, Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Richard Taylor, about the how to get the things done. And uh, the book is really excellent. It's uh, called as a nudge. And he has some other books. I think if you have time, you can read about it. I just want to say a few words about all our team here. I'm really grateful for all our resident team, faculties, and the team, because this amount of work is not possible without their contribution. And this is a happy uh, resident team here, the class of 2019. Some are maybe missing now. And the huge number of fellows, medical students, uh, past medical students, uh, we have contributed to such enormous work. So I hope uh, with that, um, you know, summary, I was able to put some thought into the pediatric robotic surgery in all of your minds. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Gundetti. Um, I just want to remind everyone that after this lecture is done, you actually have to leave this meeting and click on the other link to go to the next lecture. Today's the first day that they're doing uh, two hours of lecture. Um, so looking at a couple questions from the audience, uh, Dr. Gundetti, are there any tricks that you use to reduce fogging of your camera when performing these infant robotic cases? Do you have any tips or tricks there? Thank you, Brittany. Uh, first of all, moderating the session and you know, thank you for your contribution along with our resident team. Uh, it's been great. So in regards to your question, uh, how can you reduce the fogging? 
First of all, uh, what we tend to use is, uh, as you may have seen, that the tube is heated in circulation coil. So it's not the simple plastic tube as used uh, maybe somewhere else, uh, but there's a heated insulation coil within that plastic tube. So as the carbon dioxide comes in, you know, you can avoid that fogging. That's one thing. The second thing is uh, because the camera is three-dimensional and it emits so much of light, initial a second or two, you may have a fogging, but as the abdominal temperature comes uh, to the normal, I think you can prevent that fogging. The last thing is, you know, some um, uh, authors may use the, um, there's a solution available to front of the camera. You can put that on, I don't know the name. And always make sure that the telescopes are so, uh, stored in a, like a boiling water of more than 100 degrees Celsius, so the camera is not cold. So these are some of the steps you can use it uh, to prevent fogging in intra-abdominal space. In regards to um, infant pyeloplasty, a couple things. Is there a uh, age or weight limit um, for infant pyeloplasty? And then a question about the cutaneous pyloureteral stents. Do you notice any urine leaks after removal of the um, cutaneous pyloureteral stent? And what is your uh, urine uh, leak rate? So in regards to the first question that, you know, what is the youngest age of infant pyeloplasty? Uh, of course, first we need to make sure that they need a pyloplasty and those are, you know, like grade four, obstructed, you know, reduced function. And when they need a pyloplasty, it depends on your comfort level. I think until about 2010, I didn't do less than two years. But then after 2010, I slowly decreasing the age up to one year. And I think uh, uh, Nimrod and Chiro and few others, Pankaj looked at it. And then 2011 or 12, we went below one year, below six months. And currently we could do up till about four to five weeks. Uh, so that, you know, that's the engaged one. And the weight was about 3.1 or 3.2 kilograms. And you need to be very careful and cognizant about it that, you know, the port placement has to be very, very methodical. And then, you know, you deal with the tissues very well. The downside of these infants is their abdomen is distended with a lot of intestine. So you need to be careful about instrument exchange, the pressure. And I think, you know, pyloplasty is one thing, but we need to take into spectrum the whole baby and the baby's future. If you are not comfortable, you know, it's absolutely fine just to do a simple open pyloplasty. But I think we were fine, you know, doing until about five weeks with the 3.1 kg. In regards to your second question about cutaneous pyloureteral stent, uh, the indwelling JJ stents, you know, they work very well. But we know that, you know, you have anesthesia, you have other procedure. So the previous open surgery across the world, everybody used to do a cutaneous stent, bringing the stent through the renal cortex. And I did the same, but I started to see that the bleeding when I do the anterior wall anastomosis. So I said, why can't we bring it through the pelvis? So we brought it through the pelvis, but in initial couple cases, it got extruded out. And there was one patient where to take him back to uh, put a JJ stain, but there was another patient we don't have to do anything. But the modification we learned from that is now put a first string suture around the stain on the pelvis and so that it doesn't extrude out. And it really helped since then that, you know, the leakage or, you know, stain extrusion. I think 
except that one patient who had a leak, I think we've been pretty safe. The downside of CPU stent is you need to look at the pelvis. If the pelvis is intravenal and there is no redundant pelvis outside, you may not be able to bring the stent through the pelvis. And then you need to think about, do you want to do an internal stent or do you want to bring it through the renal cortex? Um, there's a question regarding the management of the ureter in the heminephrectomy. Um, how far down do you take the ureter? Um, and do you leave it open? Do you close it off? How do you manage your ureter and your heminephrectomies? So uh, the ureter has to be taken down as low as possible. And my take is usually to go until pelvic dream. Because what happens is after the pelvic dream, the upper moiety ureter, the posterior wall, is very close to the lower moiety ureter. And in fact, it shares the blood supply. So what I do is I go until pelvic dream, and then depending on the lower the upper moiety ureter pathology, if it is erythrocele, which is not punctured, I just cut the stump and leave it open. And you leave a Foley catheter for a day or two, and then usually the stump closes and you don't have any problem. But if that upper moiety ureter is associated with a vasicoureteral reflux or previously has been punctured, then you need to close that stump to prevent the reflux of urine. There have been about two patients who had a problem after we leaving the stump at the pelvic dream, uh, coming back with a recurrent urinary tract infection. And if you look at the literature, there is about five to eight percent rate of secondary surgery for erectrectomy when we do it in this way. And that's the thing you need to take it. But now with the excise system, what we could do is we could go in the pelvis and we could take that upper moiety ureter as low as possible below pelvic brim, keeping the posterior wall of the upper moiety ureter attached to the lower ureter so that you actually take the anterior two third of the circle and leave the posterior so that you don't devascularize the lower ureter. And that could be one thing you can take care into, but you need to always make sure that, you know, you want to take that five to 8% secondary ureterectomy, or you want to take, you know, the damage to the lower ureter. I think we'll do one last question since we only have a minute here. Um, what have you seen as far as a benefit for the robotic approach for your augments, your bladder augments? Do you see improvement in return of bowel function, lower rates of ileus? What is your experience there with the robotic um, augment? So in the previous publication and the one you put out there, we have seen that one is the return to the or, you know, normal activity in regards to the diet, in regards to the you know, consumption of the fluids. But in a long scale that, you know, these patients have been able to go home early, but the other important aspect is this spina bicuda patients have kyphoscoliosis and they're prone to respiratory tract infection when they're hospitalized because with the sick pain, with the supine position, that's not possible. So we haven't seen those type of morbidity after the robotic augments. And in the long run, we need to wait and see. So far, you know, we haven't seen the same rate of bowel obstruction which we used to see with the adhesions with the open surgery. And that, you know, will be the long-term evaluation where we see how things evolve. Okay. Well, thanks, Dr. Gundetti. I think our time is up here. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon.
Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.